Hello and welcome to another episode in the Creating Customer Success podcast series. My name is Dan and I'm your host. And my name is Alex and I'm your co-host. In this series, we are interviewing customer success leaders to learn how to build and run the best CS teams. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for joining us on the episode today. Delighted to have you on as a guest. Um, it would be great just to kick things off if you could give uh, the listeners a quick introduction to yourself and just a bit of background as well. Sure. Thanks for having me. I know this has been a long time coming, so I'm happy to finally connect and and uh, and chat with you about one of my favorite subjects, uh, which of course is customer success. I have, I've been with LinkedIn for almost nine years, and in that entire time, I was uh, I've been in customer success, um, and that was even before I or LinkedIn knew that we were in customer success. It was it's been very much an evolution in my career. Uh, I started in sales um, and then moved over to the post-sales side uh, when I joined LinkedIn. And ultimately, you know, the the role I'm in now is, is that of a senior leadership role. So I, I'm I'm removed from the day-to-day interaction of customers and more in the um, setting the strategy and the framework by which we execute our customer success principles. Um, my role at LinkedIn is managing a portfolio of customers in our search and staffing segment uh, within our talent solutions business. So LinkedIn itself has a number of lines of corporate business beyond just the LinkedIn.com platform, which is what most people are familiar about or familiar with, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so the talent solutions portfolio is a set of solutions designed to help organizations hire top talent. And so my team is uh, charged with ensuring that our customers see a return on investment. And so the subset of customers that my team supports in the United States and Canada is uh, the search and staffing segment. And so I've been leading that organization informally for about a year and a half and formally for uh, a half a year. Uh, Previous to that here at LinkedIn, I was managing our Canadian business as well as our Latin American business. But I started at LinkedIn as a CSM we didn't call it CSM. The function of the job at that point in time was probably an onboarding specialist, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We, we, that's what we thought customer success was, was making sure that you were onboarded and our onboarding was actually really bad. <laughs> we, uh, our, our product can be pretty complex and we would get on the phone for an hour and we would tell you every single feature and benefit uh, without really asking you what you were trying to achieve. Um, part of that, I think, was just you know na- being naive, but also because we just we're really proud of what we were uh, putting in front of people. So uh, we've evolved a lot since then, uh, of course. And so um, a little bit more complex in terms of what we do day to day. Perfect. Yeah. Sorry, Dan. Um, yeah, it's really, really good to hear that um, even companies like LinkedIn <laughs> have had the sort of naive mm-hmm. approach in the past um, in terms of just absolutely uh, listing all the features and benefits. Um, but yeah, in terms of like present day, what would you sort of summarize the main goals of the, the CS function to be? It's a, it's a good question because I think that um, it varies depending on where um, your customer is in their life cycle. I think a lot of times when, when people ask that question, you always immediately assume like, what, what are you trying to do with a net new customer? And the reality is, is that there are customers that I've been working with directly or indirectly for the entire time I've been here. Um, and so, you know, what we're trying to achieve with those customers is very different than what we're trying to achieve with uh, a net new customer. But ultimately, I think 
a big part of my team's role is to understand the reason why a customer decided to invest with us. Like, why did you, why did you give us your credit card or sign a check over to us for X number of dollars? Why did you make the commitment to be in partnership with us for an entire year? The conversation that my team has with our customers is a little bit different than what a salesperson would have just because of the perception of what my team is trying to accomplish. We, we separate the commercial function between CS and sales. So there, there is a sales partner throughout the customer lifecycle. Um, it's not just a, you know, try and win new business type of, of sales organization. So we're, we can benefit from that reality where our customer can look to the salesperson for commercial based questions and answers and discussions. But then they look to my team for that more sort of strategic based conversation around, okay, what are you trying to achieve as an organization over the course of the next year, two years, three years, but maybe also what are you trying to achieve next month? Let's talk about that more holistically, stepping away from the product and the solution. Let's understand what it is that you're trying to achieve and then allow me to put the plan in place to help you get there and identify opportunities and gaps that may prevent you from getting there. Um, and so really my team is, is positioned as a trusted advisor. We have to earn that trust um, but really my, my team is, is trying to understand what they're trying to achieve, deliver a plan, and then, you know, evaluate against that plan over the course of the next 12 months. And when I say yeah. it like that, it sounds really easy. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. As, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, wow, that is awesome. Obviously, yeah, as you were, um... it, it doesn't work like that. You know, <laughs> it's not that simple um, because, you know, everything, there's things that get in the way, of course. Yeah, I was going to say, as you were explaining it there, I was like, yeah, it does actually sound pretty simple when you put it like that but um because one of the the um sort of i guess challenges that usually comes up when we talk about that on on the podcast is um like how do you set such clear roles and responsibilities like that so the salesperson is you know this is who you go to for um a commercial conversation and your csm this is who you go to for those sort of strategic goals and getting the most value out of the platform so yeah i mean is there anything that you sort of tried to implement internally that um, like processes and stuff like that that do sort of help to align in that way. Well, it's a, it's a challenge, right? Because you have to you have to make sure that not only do your customers understand where to go, but you also have to understand you have to also make your internal partners understand where they should go and what everyone else's responsibility is. And so, um, I think what a lot of companies have done in the past is that there is this this idea of if it's not my job, I'm going to redirect you, um, which I, I can understand. Right, like we're all hired to do something. We're proud of, hopefully, proud of what we do. We're passionate about what we do. What we do. We're good at what we do. Um, and so, if someone asks us to do something outside of the box in which we operate, the logical sort of response can very well be, "Well, I don't do that, but Jill does." So call Jill. Hmm. The problem is, is that that doesn't create for a really good customer experience, right? Because I may misinterpret what Jill does as well. So now Jill is now suddenly having to deal with this customer that is also outside of her uh, area of influence. And so she's gonna punt the customer to somebody else. So um, I think one of the big things that we've tried to do internally is, is A, just communicate at every step, you know, when, when someone is directed somewhere internally and it's not correct to try and educate that person. And just really, you know, communicating 10x. Um, it's a strategy that we're also trying to do now internally as it relates to all the COVID stuff to mm -hmm. take care of our, of our employees and our customers. Is you know, just over communicating is never a bad thing. 
Um, but then the other, the other like real sort of important step is if you know the answer to the question and it is outside of your box, answer the question, you know, help the customer in that moment. There's nothing wrong to say, here is the answer. Next time, can you please go here? Or mm. next time, can you please go there? You, understanding that our customers all have stresses and pain points and things that are happening with them as well. And a lot of times they're just going to the last person who emailed them or the person that they have the best relationship with at the business. They don't care about our internal processes. And so um, that, that, that's difficult to sometimes execute on internally consistently, but we're, it's better. We're doing a much better job of doing that and educating that it's okay to answer the question. It doesn't necessarily set you up to have to answer the question again if you can redirect the customer in the future. So that's really, you know, that overarching understanding of customer experience is, is the next step in the evolution of, you know, this whole um, customer lifecycle model that we're trying to execute. And so that, that really is, you know, it has to come from the top. You have to, you have to really build in that customer experience mindset um, with your teams in order to be able to execute some of those smaller things that you're trying to do as well. It's really interesting, actually, because I think the old saying was like everyone's almost a salesperson for the company in terms of back in the day, it was like, you're always selling for your company in terms of experience, but all it's kind of flipped now whereby everyone's almost a customer success manager in terms of if you have that philosophy of making your customers successful, like you say, regardless of who picks up that initial question, if you are able to answer it, then you've got to kind of own that moment and make sure that the customer's getting that information and everything that they need in, in that moment. It's an interesting yeah. shift. Yeah, getting getting everyone to realize that is is not is not easy. Like when you say it out loud, when I say it out loud, like it totally makes sense. Of course, yes, we're all you know we're all representatives of the company. We're all you know part owners of the company. We're all, you know how whatever you want to, however you want to describe it. And I, I I believe in that wholeheartedly, but it can be difficult in the day to day in the in the moment in which you are currently operating. It can be difficult to understand that, and and that is a culture. That is a instinct that takes time to build. Yeah. Um, and it truly does start from the top. And it also comes with hiring the people who are in line with that and, un and truly believe in the mission and vision of the company. Um, yeah. And that's cultural fit. Like that's a whole other podcast, but cultural fit is not about being able to have a beer with someone, you know, virtually of course these days, um, <laughs> you know, cultural fit is, is, is hiring people who believe in the mission and the vision, mission and vision of the company. Um, to the point where they, when they are in that moment and they are being asked to do something out of their, their box, that they understand the value of, you know, creating that moment, as you said, for the customer in a way that, you know, may not seem like the right thing to do because you're, you know, because you're trying to execute. Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to um, ask you is slightly related to that, but more so related to what's going on currently in terms of the pandemic and um, I guess the, the downturn and negatives of that. Um, and we've been seeing a lot of sort of conversation around uh, people that work in customer success and maybe other sort of related roles that aren't, in, in some instances, aren't directly related to revenue generation. And they're maybe being the ones that are um, at risk during this um, pandemic. But is there also maybe a flip side of that based on like what we were just discussing, really, that you could almost double down on customer success and customer experience? Because, you know, as, as we all know, keeping and growing an existing customer is much easier and cheaper than maintaining new business. So in, in times like this, that's arguably the more sensible thing to do. 
Absolutely. There's two, two things that I would say as it relates to this pandemic. One of it, one of them is we have a, we have a hashtag that's, it's, it's a public thing that you'll see on LinkedIn employees ha, uh, profiles and it's hashtag in it together. Mm-hmm. And it's really this, this uh, mindset that we, that we are trying to create where we are truly in it with our customers. We are there, we are there to be true partners. And for the most part, that's a very positive thing. Um, however, when you start working with customers who are experiencing the pandemic in ways that we have never seen before, um, that can be really difficult on the CSM or salesperson or any employee. If you are truly in it with someone, that means you're in it with them for the good and the bad, right? It's like a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, the hard part is, is that it's a, little bit, it's a little bit harder to get away from your customer than it is your, your spouse if you're not really truly in it with them. So what that can do is that can really start to bring the, your employee base down. So I think it's really important, just paramount to business aside, I think you know it's just super important for employers today to invest in their employees in a way that they've never done it before. Because if you want your, your people to be in it with their customers, that means that they're not always going to be in a good place today. And you got to figure out how to be able to manage that because at some, you know, at some point in time, we, you know, we still have to have a level of productivity. It may not be as, as high as it was before, but if you're not investing in your people in a personal way, in a way that is compassionate and empathetic, especially today, it's, it's not You're not going to have a business in, mm-hmm. in the future, all, all of the other business stuff aside. So that, that's for me, first and foremost. The other part is also bringing that to your customer base as well. Yes, you know, the whole, all of those business rules of it's easier to keep a customer than lose a customer, I agree with all that. But now, more than ever, it's important for us to continue to invest in our individual customers, those champions, those individuals that we work with day to day that allow us to allow them to get a return on investment with our product. Because if you think long term, those champions and those people who are there at that company today may not be there tomorrow because of the economy. But at some point in time, they're going to be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then that then becomes a way for you to be able to continue to have a thriving business. Because if you treated them with kindness, with, you know, as a human being and as someone who generally cares about them and in turn their business, if they happen to get furloughed or laid off or whatever circumstance happens to come their way, you are going to be one of the first people they call when they get rehired somewhere else. And so you may lose a customer today, but investing in that personal relationship today is even more important because that can revert into something tomorrow. And, and you know, that's not, I'm not, this is not rocket science. I'm not suggesting that that shouldn't always be the rule, but I just think as things continue to get amplified um, in so many different ways because of this pandemic, that's one area, you know, that, that, is, that is a good way for you to continue uh, managing. So investing in your employees in a way that you've never before, but also investing in your customers in a way that you've never before. I think that that's the key to success to get, to get through this. I think you're right. I think it's just that mindset that the company needs to have around at the moment, not necessarily thinking inwards, but just thinking how can we help yes. our customers, our employees, what can we do to make a difference that's going to, have a positive impact i think customers companies also need to you know depending on the industry i think companies just need to come to the realization as well that we may not like we may have obviously we're seeing horrible balance sheets and at some point in time you got to be like it's going to be a bad balance sheet but what are we going to like what are we going to do you know we we can't you can you can become paralyzed and you 
I, I'm a true believer of moving through the change curve and being aware of all those feelings and all those emotions and all the things that the change curve does to you as an individual. And I, I really do believe in feeling all of the feels. But at the same time, you have to recognize that, you know, you have to embrace this to a certain extent in a way that's going to help you from a business perspective. And I think that the companies that will be around and thriving in the near future are the ones that invest in those relationships, both internally and externally. And, and, and maybe that's not, that, may, that might not be a popular version to some hardcore business people, but I just think at the end of the day, companies are made up of people and people want to work with people who, you know, care about other people. Yeah, completely agree. I think just even thinking from experience in terms of the, the probably the, the best customers I have or the, the best relationships are those ones where you've invested that time and you've, you've gave more than you've received at perhaps maybe certain, certain instances. Um, and it, and it does carry kind of through, through with you in that relationship, whether or not they leave and, and then they recontact you at another company a year, two years later down the line, it does, it does tend to pay off. Um, making sure you just invest in that time in those relationships with users or with, with kind of key contacts within companies. One thing I will say, if I can take the other side of the argument, mm. uh, I've written, I've written and spoken about this a bunch of times is that we should not aim to delight our customers that we, that's a buzzword in, in our industry. And, and, you know, the whole delighting your customers idea is something that I think can be very dangerous because to me, delighting your customers really means that you're trying to give your customers a good experience at any cost. You're trying to create an artificial experience by which they feel good. But as much as I just said that companies are based on, uh, you know, filled with people who want to work with other good people, there, there is a limit to that, of course, because we all have financial obligations. We all have, you know, companies aren't just around because they want to be around, they're there to make money. And so, yes, having a great relationship with someone is important, especially today. But if that relationship isn't based on the fact that it's mutually beneficial, that there is a return on investment, you know, that is, that both parties are, are experiencing, it's not going to be a long-term relationship. Um, and so, you know, you've, you've still got to focus on the areas of opportunity you have to demonstrate that, that return on investment, uh, where a company knows that the, the money that they're spending is, is actually benefiting them beyond just the feel good. So, you know, the, the example or the anecdote I like to tell about this is imagine someone you went out on a date with, you know, a few times. You know, you go out on that first date, they open the door for you, or, you know, they, they, you know it, was, it was a coffee conversation they paid for your coffee you felt good it was you know you got along so you're going to go out on the second date maybe that date is a movie or dinner and you do a couple of those and then next thing you realize you know you're into date six and it's just not working out is you know you you're not a bad person they're not a bad person they're just as in a match were you delighted throughout those five or six dates of course you were you wouldn't have gone out again with that person but there wasn't a long-term relationship there to be had. And there wasn't a connection. There wasn't, you know, you weren't willing to give up another evening with this person because it just wasn't going anywhere. The same thing applies in business, right? I mean, we can, the organic fun, you know, uh, personal relationship goes, goes uh, a certain distance and maybe further now, um, but certainly there still needs to be that, that return on investment, that long-term opportunity that both people see in order for that relationship to go forward. And that's really what you're trying to create in, in that 12 month contract that you're executing with your customer. 
They're trying to create that, that opportunity where they see a long-term relationship with you and built in, there's organic moments of delightfulness. That's really where you, you know, you hit home run. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think on, on a previous episode, we sort of spoke about that maybe more being about a mutual respect as opposed to like, like you said before, maybe you can go for a virtual beer with them. Um, and you can have a friendship with them. Well, you don't have to be friends with someone to buy something from them um, or to even, you know, go through and renew a contract and, and have a sort of yeah. repeat um, subscription. So it's more about going back to what you said initially, understanding based on this customer in their life cycle, this is what they want to achieve. And if you can display to that customer that you fully understand that, that you're passionate about that and you want to help them succeed, they don't have to be best friends with you and they'll, they'll still, um, yeah, they'll have a respect in that relationship. Right. Remember though, it, it, you're absolutely right. The, the thing that is interesting is that we're having multiple relationships at the same time, which is obviously not something I would recommend in your personal life. <laughs> in business, you're having, and so you're learning from all these relationships as well as you're going. So documenting what works and what doesn't, like, do they appreciate you opening the door for them on the first date or not, right? Um, I think that you know, some, some companies will do everything you know, right up to coming over on a Sunday and, you know, baking, you know, uh, cooking a roast and potatoes for, you know, and, and serving them dinner to keep them as customers. That's, you know, that's only going to go so far. What are the replicable, replicable moments that you can create that are scalable, that are, you know, um, impactful to the largest proportion of your customers that will allow you to be able to systematically have that customer see the return on their investment and also baked in, pardon the pun, um, those moments of delight. And I guess, yeah, kind of with that as well, what I'm probably hearing is just that we need to be a little bit more efficient with regards to the way that we work with our clients. So probably the past few years in a good economy, you can almost get away with over-servicing clients in instances and pretty much just trying to deliver the, the best experience possible and not really thinking about the individual moments and, and how that fits across your entire portfolio. I can imagine that now is probably the time where we really need to be thinking about from the resource that we have, where is the place, best place to invest that, like you said, to get the best ROI and probably thinking about where do we double down on particular clients in terms of that service and where can we just maintain a specific level of service for others and still delight them at certain moments, but do it on a more scalable, perhaps maybe uh, efficient way. And, and if, if your volumes are not what they used to be, now is a perfect time. Like there, there's the avenue by which if you want to take care of your people and you're, you're trying to resist furloughs and layoffs as much as possible, um, you know, build out, have your people build out a customer journey, have your people build out, you know, what that looks like for each of your different customers so that, you know, I, I know there's some chief, chief customer officers that have the customer journey painted on their wall, like huge walls in their office that are just a nice, beautiful illustration of the customer journey. Um, I get that. It seems it's it, it, it probably great to look at. The problem is, is that customer journeys are ultimately, I think, more dynamic than we want them to be. Um, we sort of want to, you know, have the exercise of, you know, laying out the customer journey, journey and then like, this is it, you know, and then we stick to it, you know, because we paid a lot of money for it and you know, put a lot of time into it. But the customer journey is probably out the window today, right? You know, it's probably a whole lot different than it, than it was two months ago, three months ago, depending on where you live. So I think, yeah, documenting all of this, writing it down, figuring out 
the ways in which you can scale are, are super important and now would be a great time to do it, especially if you're not as busy. Yeah. Scale is, is, for me, is one of the biggest things to achieve um, because it is viewed as something that is impersonal. impersonal. It's something that maybe um, we believe that isn't executed as well when I do it. It's not executed as personally as when I do it. Um, but you can't grow a company doing the same thing that you did when you have 10 customers and then 10,000. You have to have scale. Um, and now might be an opportunity for you to be able to figure out what that is. Because here's the other thing too, is that as the economy ramps back up, hopefully your company ramps back up. And as you grow, you're not going to be able to hire people back fast enough to be able to manage the customers in the same way that you did before. So you have to change. You have to like change, figure out ways in which you can scale activities that you weren't able to before. Because that will get, there's good work to be done today, but it'll, you know, it'll make you be able to react quicker to the changing economy as, as we pull out of this. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on how a company should best approach that? Cause we've, um, we've had some sort of split opinions on this in the past in terms of, um, I guess if you look at it as, as simply uh, simplistic as like enterprise versus scale, but you may have certain customers that actually have an element of both of that. So uh, would you recommend that a, a leader should set up their team to have a set of CSMs that are maybe more strategic and they're doing those like longer term relationship building focused engagements and then maybe a team that is scale focused or would you, I guess, try and mix them into like one person looking after that as an entire portfolio? It's a good question. I think that there is an element of scale and technology that applies to all customers regardless of size. So you've got like this bottom layer of and preferably technology that's providing some of the lowest of the low touch. Um, I'm thinking, you know, emails or in-product supports, you know, in-product uh, pop-ups or however you want to think about it. But like that's technology that can be applied to any customer regardless. And then I think as you, as you figure out what your, what your various segments are, how it is that you tier out your, your service levels, um, then you can start to, you know, invest more in the, on the people side and, and figure out how best to scale them. Ultimately at the top, you know, when you have the, the, the most complex, highest spend customers, you're probably gonna have the most personal relationship with them and some smaller companies like that's the owner. And so, you know, does that mean that they can't take advantage of some of the scaled stuff? No, I mean, it, it may take them harder to actually become adopted to that because they've had this personalized touch for so long but at the end of the day, your CSMs, I think, in, in some of your more larger strategic customers still have to leverage an element of scale. Otherwise, the headcount is just not going to, you know, the headcount math doesn't equal um, the type of probability that you're going to be looking for. So um, I think that it, it's, you know, it's a combination of both. There's going to be technology across and, and scale their reach uh, across all of your customers. But then, you know, you're, you are going to have some personalized stuff happening with your more strategic customers. Yeah, and I guess it's also maybe doing a review of what activities do your customer success managers regularly perform, and which one of them's uh, which one of them like yields the best return in terms of that relationship. Yeah, and then you have yeah, that's exactly what uh, what I would do. And but then you also have to come to the realization that the people that you currently have in place may not be the people that you need tomorrow, mm -hmm. which kind of sucks. If you're a CSM listening to this and you don't have the you know the experience working with a large strategic customer, I mean, I, I you know. I, I feel for you because you're probably, you know, thinking like Perry's trying to talk, him, talk my employer out of a job. 
clearly not what I want to do. But at the same time, there is an element of, you know, uh, we may not want to scale because we're good with hiring entry level folks and, you know, turning them over every, every year because that provides a feeder system for other parts of our business. And that, and that's cool too. I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be technology, but certainly there's only so many people you can throw at a problem or throw at a solution before, you know, it doesn't become, it doesn't make sense anymore. But yeah, if you're going to, you know, evolve your roles, you also have to make, you also have to realize that people are going to have to go too. Because it's either they don't want to do it or they can't do it. Mm. I guess kind of with that as well. So think, just thinking about the customer success teams that can, that can thrive in, in this type of environment, how would you structure it in a way? So if you was looking at perhaps maybe a, a team of customer success managers, what type of changes would you be making immediately in order to adapt to some of those changes that you just spoke about that may come in the future as the economy starts to shift and that whole approach to being more scalable and everything like that is there anything that you would do immediately to perhaps maybe look at your team and structure that in a, in a different way i think yeah i think the one thing that that i would like to take the time to do in this particular environment is exactly what we've just been talking about is what are some of the things that we can do to take away some of the um you know activities that can be done by technology and or things that can be done by fewer groups of people like one of the things i think that every company can do as they grow is start to think about their customers more holistically versus individual accounts so to speak even if you don't, if you can't go down the road of technology, if there is, you know, onboarding is something that just has, has, um, has always been like this for whatever reason in customer success, but your customer success manager doesn't necessarily have to be the person who's onboarding their customer, right? Like that's where onboarding specialist comes into play. Are there other things that you can do both in with your customers or behind the scenes where you can consolidate activities into a smaller group of people right and then the idea would be of course that you know if you're doing if you if you have five people but if you consolidated it to allow three people to do that activity then that doesn't what that then produces is two capable customer success managers to get reinvested in the more strategic area of the business so it's not about an elimination of individuals. It's about the redeployment of the smart, intelligent people that you have into, into the relationship part of the business that they weren't able to do. A lot of, a lot of CSMs are probably just drowning in the amount of you know, pro, reactive things that they're doing. But if you can try and um, you know, create a SWAT team or a Tiger team or however you would describe it of individuals that can take care of the whole book, but, you know, one of the things that, that we encounter here is, um, believe it or not, customers will buy licenses and then not assign them to anyone. <laughs> Seem, you know, it seems to me. Um, right now, the individual CSMs are responsible for trying to reduce that number as much as possible. But that can be, you know, it can be laborious, right? Because you're having a conversation with so-and-so and trying to figure it out. Um, but other times it can be a really easy fix because, you know, once you find the right person, oh yeah, shoot, I didn't know that or whatever. Um, but that, that can take a lot of time. Why not build a SWAT team of, you know, instead of all of your CSMs doing this individually for their accounts, put two or three CSMs where, you know, twice a week, they are just pounding the phones, you know, to 
figure out who the right person is and say, hey, you know, your investment has two additional seats here that you haven't assigned to anyone. You know, who can I assign them to? Why are you not, like, you know, get them to, get them to do it. And the next thing you know, um, you know, that problem solved, you get them to move on to the next metric that you want to fix. Um, I think that that type of thinking is also something that just comes with maturity as your, as your business grows, but allows you to create these sort of specialized roles within customer success as opposed to what has traditionally been a customer success manager does everything top to bottom. Yeah, I think um, it, it kind of goes, go back, goes back to what you said around like CX or customer experience being the mindset from top down. And um, like, for, for example, thinking about it from the end user's perspective. So the likelihood is, um, as you just said, if, if you had two or three CSMs that were calling those, um, those clients you had in active seats that, that hadn't been um, assigned, the likelihood isn't that they would turn around and say, oh, well, you're not my CSM, so I'm not going to tell you. Like, they don't really care who it is that as long as they're being told you have this problem, here's how we can solve it, then I think they would be quite happy with that, uh, that actual solution. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think being able to create those specialist types of roles, and we've had um, conversations around creating like CS operations roles as opposed mm -hmm. to having like, again, like you say, every single CSM doing every single admin task, uh, reporting on usage and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I completely agree. Kind of goes back to the ROI as well, doesn't it? Like you said at the start. So how can you get the best ROI from your CSMs? And then that a part of that is just looking at the activities that they're doing. And perhaps maybe a big part of that, like you said, is focusing on those more strategic relationship building activities as opposed to perhaps maybe more admin related tasks that can be scaled and maybe managed by somebody at more of an entry level role potentially in the structure of that team so you can see that and, being. and then once you realize it works then you can start to include this in the sort of kickoffs or you know um, business reviews with your customers like hey guess what mr and mrs customer um, we've identified a way by which we can engage your users for this particular you know, um, opportunity or whatever the case may be that, you know, realistically can be done via an email. And so we've actually created a small team. They're going to, they're going to leverage this. They're going to do this. Um, the email is going to appear from, you know, your company, but it's going to come from your customer success team. You know, I just, just want you to know that da, 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 this is what we're trying to achieve. Do you want to be in copy? Do you not want to be in copy? Or we're going to do an audit on your account every month, every three months of, you know, unassigned seats or people who are, you know, vacant or whatever. And we're going to, you know, who can we work with every you know, quarter to be able to do this? And now then it becomes even, you know, even easier to do. Um, and then they become used to it. They're like, oh, you know what? For seats, Joe is going to call me every month. And I know that. And then, you know, but that doesn't change the fact that my, their primary point of contact remains parity. They just now know that they make them feel better. They have a whole account team. To work with right whereas before they just had me yeah absolutely and i think it, it's just the expected behaviors isn't it like you say if you um if that's an agreed behavior at the start of the contract then uh, there is also an element of as well that i think in general human beings just like being told what to do and what is expected of them to a certain extent um, so if you sort of agree that at the start of a contract like you say you know you're going to get um a usage review once a month um you're then going to get this as your onboarding plan etc um Obviously, the, I guess the only caveat is making sure, as we mentioned before, that that goes back to the original goals of, of the customer. Yes, 100%. I, you should be reminding your customer of their goals because <laughs> they might not know it, especially if there's been a change in, in changing of the guard. 
but you should be reminding them of their goals as you know it and getting their agreement that those are still goals. Every conversation, you know, like obviously more in depth at times and, and more light at other times, but every opportunity you have to reset those goals and or reaffirm those goals is, is a win for you as an organization. So, but that's also hard, right? Like that's the sort of behavior change because so many human beings, as much as we like to be told, I, I really do agree with that. We also like to please. And so, you know, training our, our teams to understand that every customer is valuable, every customer is important, you need to listen to every customer, but that doesn't equate to you having to respond in the first five minutes. That's artificially delighting your customer. What truly is delighting your customer is setting the expectations that if you email us or contact us, I will get back to you in 24 hours with, at the very least, an acknowledgement that I'm working on this if I don't have a solution. That's way different, you know? Our CEO talks about trust is consistency over time. Um, and, and if you respond every five minutes, after five minutes of receiving an email every time, then that's what the trust that you've created. And when you take six minutes, then suddenly that trust is broken. That's not a realistic sort of SLA to maintain. So I think it's just, you know, really truly understanding what, 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 what type of experience is the true type of experience that you want to be delivering and your customers need to receive versus what we may just inherently think because we're good humans. That's a good point. Because even making sure that you're structured in a way to deliver that experience. So let's say, for example, a client does actually require a response in five minutes, let's say, then you need to perhaps maybe think about investing more in support whereby you get that kind of reactive um, response time uh, as opposed to perhaps maybe CS where you typically structured more proactively and uh, then you set the expectations around the SLAs. So yeah, I can see what you mean there. Yeah. And the, the other thing I was um, just going to sort of add on to that is and potentially this is where we, we briefly touched on it, but this is where the layers of segmentation then um, come into this. And I guess you kind of um, answered this already, but it'd be good to, to get your thoughts on uh, like what approaches there are to segmentation. So I know typically it is usually um, like the value of um, of the customer and their contract that is the sort of overriding factor. But um, what do you recommend that a, t a team should consider outside of that when they are discussing the segmentation? And then I guess, how does that feed into ultimately deciding what level of service can you attribute to each of those segments? Value certainly is a good place to start, but you also have to, depending on what your solution is, you also have to look at, at complexity of that solution. If you, if you have a traditional SaaS business where you're selling licenses and that's it, and every license is the same, like, okay, there isn't any complexity beyond just volumes then at that point in time. But if you're a business like ours, where we have multiple SKUs and different types of products that a person or a company can invest in, a $50,000 company or a $50,000 customer doesn't equal the next $50,000 customer because one can be a purely automated solution and one can be highly, um, highly requiring human interaction. So complexity is important as well. What we have um, experiment, experimented with over time is the ability for us to think about our customers from a, an industry vertical perspective. There are certainly different types of customers of ours that require different levels of service solely because of the industry that they're in. Mine being one, like we have an entire segment of sales and customer success people working with our staffing agency partners vis-a-vis -vis talent acquisition organizations within corporate structures. 
Um, so that's one, but you know, there's also, it, it, you know, depending on where you are in the world, healthcare obviously in the United States is extremely complex. Uh, whereas, you know, in the UK and Canada, it's more of a uh, public system. So it's a little bit easier slash more complex, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, I guess. Um, but you know, things like nonprofit, if you happen to have a nonprofit arm, um, or segmentation, like those customers typically, in my experience, their spend is way less because you're discounting the product. Um, but they probably need way more, uh, engagement with your team because they typically don't have the same level of expertise as some of your other customers. So how do you, how do you, you know, manage that as an organization? Um, so I, segmentation is one of those things in customer success world where this is definitely where the science is not yet anywhere close to being complete. If you were to start a sales organization, you could go buy like, you know, three or four or five textbooks off of Amazon, go read those textbooks on how to run a sales organization and da, 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 I've got a sales organization and you know what to do. Um, there, you know, the segmentation question is, is a real tough one because we don't know what really works to be honest. Um, and at the, you know, experimentation over time is required to get segmentation right. And that's another thing where similar to the customer journey comment I made earlier, we have segmentation. This is what our segments are. And this is what we're going to stick to because it's always worked, but you have to have a review of your segments over time as well, because at some point in time, those segments will be different as you grow, as you become more complex, as you introduce new products. And so I think companies, regardless of what their segmentation strategy is today, have to be open to it being different tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the key point really about the, the flexibility and the, it's just the constant reviewing, isn't it? And that applies to, as you say, both segmentation and the customer journey. And it's ultimately going to depend, like we keep saying throughout, throughout the conversation, it ultimately depends on the client themselves and their current situation, their goals, how they're evolving, how they're adapting. Um, and it is just, yeah, that, that constant review. And, and I guess that links back to what we were saying about understanding and maybe more so empathy and being able to relate to uh, the customer and what they're trying to uh, trying to achieve. So that's probably where the complexity fits into it. So if you have a greater understanding of what that um, customer is, what they do and, and what's driving them, that's where you can then make a more informed decision in terms of what segment they might, uh, might fit into. Always ask open-end questions and shut up and listen. Right? <laughs> Those are two things that we can do. Um, you know, not only for this, this particular sort of part of the, for this particular segment of the conversation, if you will. <laughs> nice. um, but, but also just in general, right? That, that's a CSM's greatest strength is to ask why and then listen, you know, like that's really where a CSM sets, them, sets themselves apart from, from a lot of their peers is when you can do that because you have to be comfortable with asking that question and then rec recognizing the customer probably doesn't know the answer a lot of times and you got to give them the space to figure it out. Sometimes you figure it out together and sometimes, you know, it takes a few times asking the question to get the right answer. So, so the same applies to segmentation. You, you gotta, you gotta ask yourself why we're doing it this way. Is this really truly, or, or the other thing too is, is segmentation solving for you internally or solving for your customer? Mm -hmm. A lot of times segmentation exists because of you, like the company itself, and that doesn't always translate into a good customer experience. So that's when you know, you know that when you've gone to that point, it's probably not great overall. So you need to change quicker, but you know, recognizing that segmentation ultimately is, serves us better than it does the customer and being flexible to change it when you need to. It was interesting earlier, actually. I remember your kind of first comment, like 
towards the start with the intro around like how customer success has evolved over time, especially even at LinkedIn during your time there. So with regards to perhaps maybe just measurement around what success looks like and recognizing perhaps maybe when certain structures and playbooks aren't working and then adapting to that, is there anything that you do internally to measure success um, and then evolve what you're doing in order to kind of shift that and, and, and be more successful as a team and as a way of working together? How ironic is it that as an industry, our, our focus is on helping our customers be successful, but it's so freaking hard for us to <laughs> ourselves, right? Like once you get beyond whether or not a customer renewed or grew, uh, it's really hard to measure if you're being successful, right? I mean, it, it, it truly is. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny here. Like, I mean, it, it seems obvious that it would be, of course, a customer renews, like you're being successful. But again, are, are you really being successful? How many things do we renew or we don't take advantage of? Um, you know, month over month. I've, I've had a membership for with Strava and Zwift for a long time. And I tell you, like, it's, you know, for the amount of times I've been working out recently, it's not what my, 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 but I feel like if I don't invest in those two things and I'm fatter than I already am. So I probably should keep those two uh, memberships going. Um, so I'm thinking like, you know, from a, from a measurement or what does success look like? I think the, the obvious is the revenue portion, if you can tie that to your customer success managers. And in my world, we can't, right? It's an indirect, it's an indirect line. There are, there are salespeople that own the commercial relationships. And while we can influence renewals and growth and all that kind of stuff, it's ultimately not the CSM who's closing the deal. So it, it, you know, we don't measure on, on that directly with the individual CSMs. Leadership, there's an element of that for sure. But individual CSMs, they could be the best CSM ever. And if their salesperson can't close a deal worth, worth their, you know, worth their weight, uh, then, you know, what's the point? I, it, it's, it's an unfair evaluation. So I think what you also need to do is you need to evaluate the way in which the customer success manager is able to um, strategically think about their book of business. So you, account management is really an exercise in prioritization. Are your CSMs producing the input or executing on the input levers that they have to be able to see the output that is required to achieve that ultimate goal, which is renewal and especially growth at renewal. So, you know, you probably start off with measuring the inputs because those are easier to do. How many times are you calling your customers? Um, you know, what are, you know, what are the, the health metrics of the, of your customers? Are they red, red, yellow, green, all that kind of stuff. That's to me, that's, it's a good place to start, but it's also just one part of the, one part of the, the, the story. The other part is, you know, how, what are the, what are the things that we need to see happen as a result of those touch points to be able to truly say that you're making an, an impact. And sometimes it's not just as simple as measuring things over time because Again, that's not always fair, right? Like if I were to measure someone's utilization, but right now they're not utilizing the product, well, how fair is that, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to really, it, I think it's an evolution. It's also something that we still don't know yet, you know, from a scientific perspective, but measuring the, the inputs as it relates to what the actual outputs are supposed to be is really where you want to, you want to get to that, that point in, in, the, in, in the maturity of your evaluation of your CSMs. Are your CSMs being able to influence the outputs in a way 
that uh, get you to the end commercial relationship that you want to have with your customer. That's really what you need to do, but it, it's also, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and it also requires you to have hundreds of thousands of data points to be able to understand what that looks like. So a net new company isn't necessarily going to be able to do that. And I appreciate that, but a more evolved company, you know, if you're still evaluating, you know, the, the amount of logins your user base has vis-a-vis -vis this, this, the, the relative success of that CSM, I'm not entirely sure you're, you're looking, uh, uh, you know, from a macro perspective well enough to be able to determine whether or not these CSMs are doing a good job. Yeah, completely agree. And, and um, it's interesting, even just like the mention of usage there, because it's probably a common one that comes up with regards mm -hmm. to measuring success, but there's so many factors that can influence that. And then even in itself, just because somebody is using a, a, a platform or a product, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're obtaining value from that. Right. So um, yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely a tricky, tricky thing to measure and implement almost personally. I think sometimes the, the common sense approach sometimes can be, or just the human element to it can be the best way to measure that. Just understanding what is actually going to be successful. If we kind of look at why that, client renewed or why there was growth on that account and then looking at the activities and understanding the influence that each of those activities had and applying just some general human common sense to that where you can kind of say well actually would that have happened without that probably no you almost need to just start with that approach so and lastly this is all going to be is potentially different or um if your product is mission critical then that that changes the game a little bit right but if it's not mission critical then you know all of this is even more in flux and that makes it even more challenging um i can't imagine what netflix is going through right now because as much as we may have thought they were mission critical in our lives they really weren't but now with with isolation and all this stuff i mean can you imagine if netflix stopped working it's mission critical to my humanity and my survival as a human being at this point in time, not only because I need my kids to be able to engage with it, but I also need to do that as well at the end of the night. So, and that must be a really interesting place to be right now. Yeah, I think, um, as you say, going back to comparing it to something like sales, where there is a, there's pretty much an exact science to that. You know, did you sell to that client? Yes or no. Did you expand that client? Yes or no. Whereas for, you could almost make the argument, as you were just saying there, that for, for CS, the goal is dependency. And if you can get to that dependency, then um, you know, that client is, you, you've done your job with that particular customer. But as you say, the issue is how do you know that that is dependency? Because as Dan was saying, it's not just usage because you could use the platform, but then you know, you're not necessarily loyal to it. If, if something better comes along the next right. day, you might quickly yeah. jump ship and that isn't uh, dependency. So yeah, I think that's where the, the difficulty is really, isn't it? In terms of what does that look like? And it, it may be different for every client as well, as we've said. Exactly. And so what you got to figure out how to find out how to find that out it takes time takes trust. And then once you find out like, are you writing this down, you know, mm. and a lot of smaller companies, they, they just aren't because they're moving so fast. But, oh, man, I don't care. Like, even if it's a shared shared Google Doc or something, or Excel, I should say, um, write it down, you know, like make sure there's some place where you're documenting all this because if, if that's, that person decides to leave your organization, you're kind of, you're kind of up the creek yeah i think even because just thinking about that as well there will be clients that just won't get to that level of dependency as well and it probably goes back to the segmentation you spoke about 
you've almost got to recognize those clients that will be dependent and then double down on them and recognize the ones where there perhaps maybe isn't that potential there to to either grow it further or to get it to that relationship where they may perhaps maybe not jump ship essentially um so yeah to think about those customers that you have and where they are in those different stages 100 and that's where that complexity piece comes in right it, it doesn't just have to be complexity of the the product suite, it could be complexity of the relationship or complexity of who that customer is. If they're a, a, an influencer beyond just, you know, um, their, their world, um, you probably want to make sure they have a, a good experience, right? And an experience that see, allows them to see value as quickly as possible and in a way that makes sense for them. Um, because, you know, their investment may not be big, but they could have the opportunity to influence in a way that, you know, uh, could lead to other uh, investments of bigger sizes. So, yeah, segmentation just can't be done by, no offense to our sales ops friends, can't just be done by operations people looking at a spreadsheet. That, that's a, I mean, that's probably 75% of it, you know, but beyond yeah. that, you need a human being. Interesting. And um, I guess probably we've, we've, we've spoken a lot about trends with, with COVID and perhaps maybe where CS is evolving. But from your experience, is there, is there anything that you see as being maybe a big, change in cs over over the coming years with regards to how we how influential we are as a team within companies or anything along those lines it'll be interesting just to see if yeah i guess from what you've experienced previously with the evolution of cs what you anticipate to happen in in the future yeah i think that there's definitely going to be a trend to have more and more um c-level executives as it relates to the you know, customer experience. Um, so CXO, I guess, is, is a common title, that chief uh, experience officer. I think that that's, you know, having a greater say at the C-suite level is something that will happen within our industry. I think further specializations of our roles, of, of the, the actual function of CS in the sense that we, we probably won't have the majority of CSMs doing everything and, and, and anything. There'll be, and that includes operations in there as well. There'll be a greater specialization of, of what, the, what the function of CS is, but also what the role types are within customer success. And I think at some point in time, we'll figure out as, a, as, a, as an industry whether or not CS should own the commercial relationship. You know, that's probably one of the bigger differentiators amongst organizations as to whether or not we do. And, and how customers interpret a customer success manager if they own the renewal or not. So I think that we'll probably, you know, there, there may not be any level of consistency necessarily in terms of, you know, it's one or the other, but I think there could be a greater definition of why you would go one route or the other. Right now, it's, a, it's probably a choice of convenience or a choice of this is how we've always done it or it's a natural evolution and all that kind of stuff. I think that at some point in time, it'll be, a, you make a conscious decision to go in one direction or the other, as opposed to experimenting with either one. So those, I mean, nothing revolutionary there or anything, but I think that especially at, in today's time, um, the role of CS is far greater than it ever has been before in levels of importance. Um, and so really understanding what it means to, you know, prove that ROI because there's going to be a whole lot of delight going on right now, right? There's a whole lot of delight that's happening just in general. Um, the differentiator is going to be, can you, can you, can you show a return on investment now? Um, in addition to those organic moments of delight. Perfect. And I think um, one of the things that's probably related to that is 
uh, the other question that we usually ask our guests is around um, advice. Um, so yeah, kind of related to that, what, what would be your advice for someone who is maybe currently a CSM and they want to um, sort of grow their career, take that next step and move into a leadership team where, just as you said, really, that the focus is maybe more on ROI and maybe a different um, sort of commercialized mindset. What, what would be your advice in terms of the steps that they should take and the things that they should maybe focus on or try and expose themselves to to, um, to try and get into that role? I think more and more there is going to be a need for us to have people who bring a more operational mindset to uh, to this role um, because this has primarily been a whole bunch of people who maybe have been in sales before and didn't want to carry a quota um, and or people who are in uh, education, training, those kind of things. Those are primarily what CSMs have been hired as in the past. And more and more now we're coming across people who are customer success professionals just because they've been able to do it for a while. So anyone who can sort of display that operational analytical sort of macro level thinking to their book of business, to their organization, uh, making recommendations that think about um, things holistically at, at greater scale, as opposed to trying to solve for the individual customer problem in that moment. I think that sets you up for success. I think right now is also a great time to be learning. Um, you know, we've seen here at LinkedIn, the amount of hours spent with LinkedIn learning, uh, just exponentially grow because people, unfortunately, have the time, but fortunately, they have the time. So I think that, you know, that concept of always be learning is just a good mantra to have as an individual and as a professional. So I think if I were to be starting again, like I would, I would probably not be hired today because I was way focused on the educating and delighting my customers and being the guy who could, you know, make someone laugh on the phone uh, or, or carry on a conversation, make them feel good about recruiting when they didn't really want to recruit. Um, whereas that there's still an element of that, but I think more now there's an opportunity to lean into that operations of CS and the ability that you have to be able to, you know, make things solve for the system as opposed to the subsystem. Um, and you know, a whole host of other cliches that I could throw in there. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always, I always love these podcasts cause I always kind of, as I'm going along, you always reflect on what you do yourself and you take things away and think, actually, I kind of maybe do elements of that and I'm going to, I'm going to work on that. And it's interesting to hear your perspective and, um, yeah, great, great kind of lesson there. So, uh, really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun guys. I really, it was worth the wait. Yeah, yeah, no, same for us as well. And uh, even hopes to it again sometimes because I think there's there's so many subjects we could even delve further into that we that we just spoke about. So um, hopefully we'll uh, have you as a guest again in the future. Yeah, 100%. I would love that. It'd be my pleasure. And hopefully we can do this in person next time. Absolutely, that'd be that'd great. Be Perfect. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for joining. It was uh, great speaking with you. Thanks yeah. a lot, John. Appreciate Cheers. it. Cheers. Thanks a lot.